This episode of Landmine Radio is sponsored by Dittman Research. Do you know what the most valuable thing in the world is? High-quality information. Because high-quality information informs much better decision-making. Dittman Research has been providing high-quality information to Alaska's leading businesses, organizations, and campaigns for 50 years. Do you really know what Alaskans think about your company or your issue? How about your clients, your shareholders, or your employees? So stop fumbling around in the dark. Hire Dittman Research and find out what's really going on. DittmanResearch.com Okay, we're live here with Dr. Ann Zink. How you doing, Dr. Zink? I'm good. How about you, Jeff? I'm. Uh, I feel great. I have COVID. Apparently, I got a rap or a PCR test Saturday. Uh, I was supposed to go to Hawaii tomorrow, which I'm no longer doing. Bummer. Sorry but to I hear feel, that. I was pretty shocked to you know. I know they say they say 40, 50. I, I, the studies depend, but a lot of folks are just totally asymptomatic, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. There, as CDC estimates about 40% of people. So yeah, it's kind of a crazy disease that way. So many people can be asymptomatic or really mildly symptomatic. And then some people get super sick. So I'm glad that you're feeling well. That's the most important thing. So in some ways, um, the asymptomatic people, I mean, this is like the power of this disease is if it's like the Spanish flu or some really bad SARS-1, you kind of know you have it, right? And exactly. you probably won't go out. Right. But this, you don't know. You feel fine. You go out and for good reason, and then unknowingly can spread it to the other. That's a difference between infection versus disease. So disease, when you get sick and you're not feeling well, versus you can be infectious uh, even without being sick. And there's lots of other diseases like this. Polio, 94% of people who had polio were completely asymptomatic. Yet it was enough to cause lots of kids to get super sick and be on iron lungs and then cause you know post-polio syndrome. So we've got lots of other diseases that can be this way as well. Um, but this is an example and it's a, it makes it challenging to slow down. I was reading that uh, it's it's kind of maybe counterintuitive, but the the really deadly ones, like the Spanish flu, was very deadly. The really deadly ones actually they don't last as long because they they kill people so quickly they don't spread. The less deadly ones are actually worse for pandemics, right? Because they spread they they don't kill as many people, so they they can spread a lot more and survive longer. Is that right? Yeah, you're exactly right. So this disease needs it can't replicate on its own. It needs cells to replicate. Uh, and so right now it's using a lot of human cells to replicate. And so by you being in your house and not seeing others, um, then when your body fights it off, then that virus can't spread and it can't replicate and it won't continue onward. Um, and, but if it, it just killed people quickly before they could mix with others, then wouldn't have a chance to jump from person to person. But something like an asymptomatic disease, it just gives it a chance to jump from host to host really, really quickly. So right now, you know, I got the positive test and I was reading, I mean, the, the uh, chance of a false positive is pretty low a false negative is higher is that is that right totally right on nice job i've been reading i've been reading a lot yeah i'm impressed good job because i got my covid <laughs> so so what's going right now like i mean what, you're a doctor what's happening inside me i mean there's something inside me and it's doing something but i'm not i mean i smell fine i feel fine i no problems yeah so basically you got this uh virus in you sars-cov-2 and essentially it's a little jumble of RNA molecules surrounded by a fatty structure with a bunch of sugars uh, kind of sticking off. And those sugars are these spike proteins. Uh, and those spike proteins with these sugars on them uh, attach into your cell and enter into your cell and replicate. And right now your body's seeing those and then attacking them. And so right now there's kind of a, a push-pull uh, 
process going on in your system to try to, to eliminate the virus. Um, and if your body overreacts to it, you can become quite sick quite quickly. If your body very minimally reacts to it, it just kind of gets on top of it and ends it quickly. And it depends on people's underlying conditions. Uh, 10 days is what we look for. So 10 days from uh, the onset of test or onset of symptoms, whichever one's earlier. And the reason for the 10 days is because um, we haven't been able to grow live virus past nine days and otherwise healthy people. So we yeah. want to see three things, uh, 10 days since onset, 24 hours since no fever and symptoms improving. But someone who's asymptomatic, that's just 10 days then. Um, and then after that point, thought to no longer be infectious. We don't recommend a, a test to clear um, because people can have kind of residual viral particles for a bit of time because we just look for these little RNA particles for a bit of time in there. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine, he's a surgeon. He was saying for some of the operations, they do like a pre-screening test and a few people have had it asymptomatic. Um, and then one patient, they got it again. I guess they might have changed the policy a little bit on how much time they can wait to get this procedure if they're, they're asymptomatic. But then uh, six weeks later, again, never had a symptom, tested positive again. So, so can it stay in the system? Yeah, so some people have kind of these remnant RNA molecules for a long time afterwards. So that's why we recommend no repeat testing for 90 days after infection. And so actually for our testing travel protocol, you don't need to get tested for 90 days after infection um, because we don't want to kind of falsely pick up these little MNR, uh, these uh, RNA remnants that are left over. We don't recommend procedural testing within that 90 days of infection. So kind of from here to after you've cleared, you got 90 days. Um, where the travel and the pre-procedural testing doesn't apply. So I should not go get another test today just to go check, check it. No, just to ver- no. I was going to, I was going to go get a verification. I was actually, after we left, I was going to go get a verification. No, test. please don't save that test for someone else and save your pocketbook. No, there's no, well, because need. I paid. So I went to Capstone Saturday to pay for the Hawaii test. Okay. That was 95. And then I went back the next day. They told me I couldn't do it because 20, I don't know, 24 or 48 hours. So I was going to go today to one of the free ones, which I've done before. Don't do it. Don't do it. There's no point. You've already tested positive. Just get through your 10 days and then you don't need any other testing for 90 I just days. Thought, I thought maybe it was a false positive because I, I feel so You good. and the rest <laughs> of the world, but no. <laughs> so because good. we wouldn't change our recommendation at all. I mean, that's one of the first things you're taught in med school. You know, only order a test if it's going to change how you would act or what you would do. And it wouldn't change what we would recommend. The chance so of a false positive is so low compared to a false negative. Even if it came back negative, we would still tell you to go 10 days from the first one. If it was positive, we'd still tell you to go 10 days since the first one. It wouldn't change anything. Okay. Um, so other thing I want to ask you, the vaccine now, you know, we got the, the Pfizer um, and the Moderna one was just approved and we've had those in Alaska. Um, talk a little bit about kind of, I know I just saw an article on APRN about who's getting it and they're trying to figure that out. I know a lot of folks want it. Everybody wants it. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, I told somebody I was doing this with you and they and they said, tell her, I want the vaccine. What do I got to do? And I said, I don't think it works that way. I'm pretty sure there's a, I mean, how does the structure work and who kind of decides and, uh, who yeah. gets it and how does that go? Great question. I appreciate you asking. It's, um, it's hard. I will just say we are not good at a limited resource availability as a country, as a nation. So I would love to have vaccine available to everyone. Um, what happens is we look at the science and the data. There's a committee called the ACIP, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices that advises the CDC on who should get vaccinated. And they're looking at risk benefit, both to the individual as well as to society as a whole. And so they take all of that information and they're great uh, to listen to. There was actually a bunch of uh, meetings this weekend and I would highly encourage people to listen to them because they bring up really good points and a lot of interesting information, a lot of data. 
Uh, and then they kind of say, okay, this is who we think should be phase 1A, phase 1B, and move forward. So they determined that phase 1A should be healthcare workers who are regularly exposed, as well as long-term care residents and staff. And they actually met yesterday and decided that phase 1B should be highly exposed essential workers and those over 75 is kind of the next group. And so then we have an advisory committee to the allocation within the state of Alaska. So with phase 1A, we took it to them and we said, hey, we don't have enough vaccine coming in for everyone within phase 1A. What should we do? Should we just open it up and it's first come, first serve within 1A? Or should we tier it? Or, or what do you guys think? And so they looked at our data, we shared our numbers, we looked at how many we we're getting in, and they ended up tiering it into three different tiers, uh, tier one, tier two, and tier three. I can see that being like a disaster if you had like first come, first serve, you know, show up to, <laughs> I can see that being getting wild. Right, like you want to do it fair and equitably, um, but it, um, yeah, but you you also don't want to like over-interpret it and you don't want to restrict it if, if someone really does meet criteria. So right now, like I'm getting a lot of really angry outpatient doc saying, I'm part of 1A, why haven't you opened it we, up to me? We have a question from uh, my friend, Dr. Dan, he's an optometrist. He said, where are the optometrist and dentist and other outpatient providers in the line? Yeah, so he and probably a hundred emails in my box just today are consistent with that question. And so they are <laughs> part of tier three of 1A. So they are healthcare providers who are exposed to COVID and COVID patients um, and cannot do telemedicine. And so they became part of tier three. The reason they were not tier one or tier two were a couple different things. If you looked at the number of cases and the mortality, they looked at long-term care staff, hospital staff, and outpatient. Long-term care staff were the highest, then hospital staff, then outpatient staff. Also, if you looked at who was most restricted in our ability to do emergent care, really the hospitals. And then honestly, a big part of it too was just literally logistics. Like we were getting this first dose in and it was ultra cold Pfizer. We didn't know exactly how it was going to go. And so simply for the logistics of it as well, they initially were like, okay, let's do hospital highest exposed in the hospital for those three reasons within it. So you, but then you got one a couple, oh, sorry, go, go ahead. Well then, so we're working through the process. And so the committee just voted on tier three, which is those additional healthcare workers, including the optometrist and the dentist. Those are published on our website now. And as soon as kind of groups move through that tier one and tier two, they're opening up into tier three. We expect that most communities will be into tier three by January 4th. So you got the vaccine a couple of days ago. I actually shared the video on, on our page um, and it was your birthday, right? It was my birthday. What, what day is your birthday? December 18th. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm today. Today's my oh, COVID birthday. Happy birthday. Yeah. Now you yeah. have a not so fun COVID birthday. <laughs> and and on, on Saturday, after I got tested, I was driving back home and it was snowing and it was, you know, really bad storm. And I'm on the, I'm the president of my condo board, which is lucky for me. Uh, the, one of the plow trucks and the loader was backing up. I was trying to avoid him. It was snowing. I have a white car backed into me, buckled the hood. <laughs> it's my birthday weekend here. Birthday weekend. Oh, look, I have a Sagittarius mug for us. Oh, see, now, now I was always told growing up and I actually have a, that's another story. I have a, a painting. I commissioned it. It's a long story. It's me of a cent is a centaur. Oh, yeah. Actually, a great painting. But I was many, many years later, always thinking I was Sagittarius. Apparently, I'm on the cusp. Oh, are you? I never first. So close attention. So, um. so I just I identify as Sagittarius. I know what okay. you can identify as. So I've always been Sagittarius. But oh. yeah, longest night of the year, the, sol the solstice. Yeah. Well, happy birthday. Um, Thank you. Yeah, so, I'd sing for you, but I'm a really bad singer. No, I, yeah, <laughs> my mom already called me this morning and sang for me. Oh, good. <laughs> so did you? Now, now there's been a few adverse reactions. I mean. A couple in Alaska, I, I think you said before we started a few more nationwide, but we're, we're talking about a very small amount uh, based on the number of doses that have already been given. 
Um, so talk a little bit about that. And then also, you know, we did um, actually our first podcast we did, uh, you know, over a year ago before this whole thing started uh, is now my number one podcast and I've done oh, wow. over 200. And I think that's because Alaska Public Media did an article about you and they embedded my podcast. Okay. So it just started getting, so you're, you're number one. Um, but we were, we were doing that. You were talking about, remember, I told you I didn't get the flu shot then because I thought I was going to get sick. And you said that was kind of not, it's a myth that mm -hmm. you can get the flu from the flu shot. Um, but sometimes people can have an adverse reaction with the vaccine. So maybe talk a little bit about that and then why we've had a couple of these in Alaska. Yeah, so that's a great question. So I was looking at the CDC website as of today, according to them, actually, the, they last updated on December 20th. Uh, there have been 556,208 vaccines administered in the United States uh, wow. to date. Yeah, wow. <laughs> it's a lot wow. moving out there. Uh, as of my call this morning with the CDC, there had been six uh, severe allergic reactions, anaphylaxis-like reactions reported. Uh, two of them have taken place in Alaska, uh, one in Fairbanks, one in Juneau. Um, there are lots of other potentially adverse reactions that are being reported into the system on a regular basis, and we are encouraging all healthcare providers to report anything, everything that might be an allergic reaction or an adverse reaction into the system. That way we just have a better sense of what is or isn't happening. Um, couple different things. When you look at the data from the placebo versus the vaccine, you see in both groups adverse reaction. You see people who got normal saline injections, who got a sore arm, who got lightheaded, who got hives and a rash, who passed out. Um, and so just stress itself can cause people to pass so that, out. So that's the mind or the body being stressful. And, and I, I think, you know, this is off topic a little bit, but they say the biggest factor of health, you know, besides heart and all these lungs and all is stress mm -hmm. because that has such an impact on everything else. Right. They go to hand in hand. I always joke that like the mind and body are one in every way, except for the way we pay for healthcare, but yeah, they are completely connected between those things. That being said, I think that there's something more to this than just stress um, because we're seeing more of kind of these anaphylactic type reactions with this vaccine than we have been with a couple other ones. So there's lots of lots and lots of conversation happening on the back end about why that is and what it is and what it looks like. The good thing is they happen very, very quickly. So they happen usually within 10 minutes of receiving the shot. They turn around very quickly with a treatment with epinephrine, which is widely available. I was, was going to say, is this like an EpiPen or like an yep. adrenaline, a, adrenaline shot situation? Yep, which is like kind of the standard treatment for anaphylaxis. Um, one person did get admitted overnight to be watched and observed and was discharged the next day and did fantastic. Um, but this is all treatment that, you know, everyone from the community health aides to hospitals are, are familiar with taking care of uh, and, and care for on a regular basis. But it's kind of actually fun looking through the placebo versus real data. I mean, like in the Moderna data, like someone got struck by lightning. Like there's all sorts of things that happen to humans as humans <laughs> that may or may not be related to vaccine the vaccine. Caused me to get hit by lightning. <laughs> totally. So I think it's important to like, we have to put all these things in context, just like we do with, you know, people who get COVID and not like we don't classify someone who gets in a car accident and dies because of the car accident to COVID, even if they test positive. Mm. Um, and the same with reactions. You need to go through the case and you need to have clinicians look at it and say, are these related or aren't they related? And that takes time. And we're doing the same thing for cases as we are for vaccine administration. So that's an interesting uh, topic you raised. And I was going to ask you about that. Um, I, I know this has been a controversial thing people have talked about, but, you know, if somebody has, uh, I don't know, cancer or, you know, high, heart disease or some other underlying bad um, health condition and they get COVID, you know, who, at what point kind of do you decide? I mean, if somebody's very, very sick, like my, actually my, my good friend in New Mexico, his, his dad was in the seventies, he had pneumonia. Um, he, he was recovered. He got COVID. He, he passed away a few weeks ago. Mm, sorry um, to hear that. So it's, it's, you know, it's very, it's very sad, but mm -hmm. at what point do, do, who decides kind of what, what, cause I mean, ultimately we all die of 
My doctor yeah. friend told me ultimately we all die of cardiac arrest. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. As Jay Butler said, you know, life is 100% fatal. Yeah. Condition. Yeah. <laughs> we all are going to die. No. So right now, when we look at like our dashboard, when we say COVID deaths, those are when a clinician, so it comes to the clinician, it's not us deciding, has listed it on their death certificate, either oh, as a okay. contributing or underlying cause of death. That being said, at the end of the year, we go through all of our data and we say how much was underlying, how much was contributing causes of death, and we'll go through all of that and kind of pull those out as the death certificates get processed. And then it gets compared to heart disease and, and all, all of the other types of diseases. So I just really want to encourage people patience. It just takes a while for clinicians to put it in for the death certificate process to be reviewed. And then to, and particularly in this state, you know, we have places where there's no funeral home where people bury them. So it's not like we have an easy reporting system. They might mm -hmm. bury them in their neighborhood or in their community um, and uh, then report it to the local health aid. And it takes a while for the whole process to come through and for that to be reported. So it's not, it's not like we all um, have some sort of, you know, microchip or something that tells us mm -hmm. like, this is what I died of, and I'm going to immediately report it into this data system. Uh, it it takes a while for clinicians to make that judgment for it to be reported in and for the state to go through it. And we'll have more data moving forward. But we do this COVID deaths is just like we do every other death. Um, and that's where we go through if a clinician reports it, and we look at kind of if it was an underlying contributing. But we know the people who have uh, worse conditions are the sicker they are, the higher likelihood they are of dying from multiple diseases, urinary tract infection, influenza, COVID. But you know, if we have an 80-year-old cancer patient on home hospice and gets influenza, um, and the and the um, provider lists influenza, urinary tract infection, and metastatic cancer, we list all three of those as well. Um, we just take what the clinician puts in. Um, Amber Amber asks, if you had if you had COVID and survived, and you have natural immunity, um, do you still need to get vaccinated? Yes. So, and the reason is is because oh really? Well, I was gonna I was I was expecting a no. You were expecting a no. I'm yes. glad I could surprise you today. Um, you know, probably not. You probably can wait 90 days. So for like you uh, right now, you know, with a really tight resource limited vaccine right now, you probably have a decent natural immunity for at least 90 days. But it looks as though the people get very variable immune responses to natural infection and, and that immunity wanes fairly quickly over time. And it looks as though the immunity vaccine is actually better than the natural immunity and it's cleaner and it's a little bit longer lasting. We'll have a better sense of how long lasting over the next few months. Um, but as a result, we are not antibody testing prior to vaccination. We're not COVID testing prior to vaccination. And we are recommending people get tested even if they have recovered from COVID. If you are actively infected with COVID, you should not be getting vaccinated. Mm -hmm. So you don't get vaccinated yep. when you're sick. I got the antibody test last month. I, I went to LabCorp and paid for it. It wasn't that much. And I was curious because, you know, a lot of people have it asymptomatic and it said negative. And, and I had been tested twice, once in October, once in November, the, the uh, P, P, uh, was it PSR, PCR, PCR test and, and I was negative. So um, I, guess, I guess there has been some, some reports of people who have gotten it and then, you know, six months later gotten it again. Mm -hmm. Now, is that the same thing or is it mutating? I've, I've read different things, but what's going on with a, a second infection? So in general, I think your body has some pretty decent immunity, but it wanes. We've had cases here in the state of Alaska that have been reinfection. To really truly classify it as reinfection, what first of all, they get a repeat test, PCR test, or other type of test that's positive outside of that 90 days. So it's outside of that kind of residual mRNA that can be uh, circulating around. And these cases, uh, we kind of go through and go through their history. And the ones that have been reported in the literature, they then do genomic sequencing to see if they're exactly the same virus or different. And the, the reinfection ones have been slightly different. 
Um, it doesn't mean that your body wasn't immune to the last one. It just means it likely is is waning its immunity, didn't have a great immune response, and was starting to lose some of that immunity. To it. So, so we, we talked about this at our second podcast, I think we did in Juno. Um, now, the, the common cold, I think we all kind of know now, is, is a form mm -hmm. of a coronavirus. Um, when somebody gets a cold each year, every, you know, two years later, that's obviously a different, it's still a coronavirus, right? But it's a different, is it a whole different thing compared to like a different version of COVID? Kind of. I mean, it's a, it's a coronavirus, so it kind of has that same structure. So it's still an RNA um, uh, virus covered by this lipid particle, um, but has a different, and they still have like these spikes off of them, but they have a different spike protein that enters and they enter the cell in a different way. So this virus, so this is this virus is actually called SARS-CoV-2, is much more similar to SARS-CoV-1, which caused the disease SARS, and enters at the ACE receptor cell, which is a different way that it enters uh, in via like the common cold, which is more the upper mucous membrane cells. The first SARS was that was uh, pretty bad, right? That was yeah, much higher deadly. mortality rate. Mm -hmm. So you got the vaccine uh, on your birthday, so what four days ago? Yeah, or three days ago. Uh, have you had? How do you you? Any problems or any um, reaction? Are you you look you look good? So look good. <laughs> still alive, still doing right. well. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I felt really lucky to get it. I feel um, I wish everyone could get it. I'm feeling slightly guilty. I got it because I am still seeing patients in the emergency department, and my hospital ER uh, prioritized me to getting it just because we see patients in the emergency department on that exposure level. So that's why I got it. Um, and they just that was the date they scheduled me to do it. So I went in and, and got it done. Um, you know, I would say I didn't even really notice it going in. There was a lot of media that was awkward. I've never had a vaccine on media. I, saw, I shared the video and it was like, there was a, they sing happy birthday and it was, you were in the scrubs and it was very, it was very much a, there's a lot. Very, very good video. Yeah. Thanks. Well, I was hoping to get in and get out. Um, I got a little emotional talking to some of my colleagues who I ended up vaccinating, but, uh, it was, um, it was good to get it. Felt fine. Uh, that night, um, probably three, four hours, you know, my arms started to feel warm, like my whole arm and my uh, armpit and lymph nodes started to feel sore. And I was like, Oh, this is going to be sore from this. Um, I don't know if you've ever gotten like a skin infection, but you can kind of feel your pulse stronger. It just feels like there's more mm -hmm. circulation to that. That's how my whole left arm felt. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be kind of sore in the morning. And I went to bed that night and I woke up the next morning uh, and it was totally gone. I didn't feel any arm soreness. My wrist felt fine and the sight felt totally fine. Like it's not even, I usually get sore from a flu shot. Usually a flu shot, I feel like I've- yeah, I was, was going to say, I got the flu shot after you you uh, shamed me a couple of years ago on our first <laughs> podcast. So I, I got that and um, it wasn't a big deal, but it was definitely, you could notice a little bit for a couple of days, kind of a maybe an unpleasant feeling in the arm, but it was no big yeah. deal. This was a little different. Like I wasn't as sore, but it was more like my whole arm had felt hot and then it went away. And then like, I went snow biking the next day and worked the whole next day and felt fine. And it felt fine since. Um, Sarah asks, uh, does the vaccine put people um, at risk of chronic autoimmunity? What's your advice for people who have existing autoimmune conditions? Yeah, so and it's a great question. I and, and let me know if I shouldn't be asking medical, I don't know, medical questions, but people <laughs> are asking. primary so. care doctor first. <laughs> um, yeah, so we always encourage you to talk to your primary. I mean, autoimmune diseases can vary significantly um, and people can be on a really strong immunosuppressants uh, to just being managed by, you know, dietary control or other things. Um, but at this time, uh, it is not a contraindication for getting the vaccine uh, as a whole. Uh, there is no protein in our body that looks like the spike protein. So basically what this messenger RNA does is it's this little tiny strip of kind of mRNA. It's coated in this little nanoparticle that enters your cells. It does not enter where there's DNA. So it does not go to where the nucleus is or the mitochondria. 
it goes to where there's these things called ribosomes that help to translate RNA. And so your ribosome sees it and it translates it and it makes a little spike protein. And then your cell exposes that spike protein. And then your body sees that spike protein as like foreign invader and creates an immune response to it. It's kind of like getting the secret code instead of getting all that RNA entering your cell, like you're unfortunately having right now with COVID. I just have the spike protein entering my cells right now. Uh And I'm just showing that little bit. So my body's building an immune response to that spike protein versus your body's building a response to that entire structure and what happens. And I kind of think of a natural response as a kind of choose your own adventure response. (laughs) People respond in different ways versus a vaccine is just really specifically directed at just that spike protein. Um, And and it's thought to have less autoimmune kind of cross-reactivity than the natural infection because that reason. Um, Chad asked, and I was actually gonna ask a kind of variation of this question. Um, you know, do you feel at all emotional getting the vaccine and after nine months of, of doing this and um, what is it like ha- finally having the vaccine? And then kind of follow up for me is, I mean, this last nine months has been probably nothing like you've ever experienced and kind of, you know, how's that, how's that been? And what, I mean, maybe describe a little bit of kind of how your life has radically changed since, you know, February, March. Yeah, that's a great question. I was a bit of a wreck, honestly, to say last week, it was really emotional last week. I think by the time the vaccine came around, I was like relieved. Um, but I think it's just, um, it's been a long, hard month uh, and a whole year for not just myself, but for all Alaskans and everyone around the world. I mean, we're losing more than a person a minute right now to COVID-19, seeing, you know, initially in my emergency department, you know, my team was like buying ponchos and getting gas masks to care for patients and really worried that we would die. I've lost many emergency medicine colleagues uh, to covid you know, haven't seen my parents, like we've all had many friends have lost their job. It's been challenging in in so many different ways. Um, But to see this vaccine, I think one of my big fears was that we were going to get a vaccine that would be okay-ish, but not great. (laughs) And be like, well, we'll kind of slow down and we'll kind of help out. To see the data behind these two vaccines has been astonishing. And it's better than I allowed myself to dream, honestly, um, about where we would be at this point. Um, so I'm pretty, pretty darn excited by the science that we've been able to get to at this point. I have nothing to do with that science, just reading a lot of papers on it, but man, hats off to the scientists who have been working around the clock uh, to get to this point with these vaccines. So I I feel incredibly grateful that we are at this point to being able to vaccinate people, to give people some degree of hope outside of what we've had. It's not perfect. People still can get disease and it's still going to take a while. It's still going to be a few months, but it's a, it's a big step uh, in the right direction uh, moving forward. And it's just, it feels, it feels just like a huge sense of relief to be able to offer something else um, besides, well, maybe this treatment will help and just keep staying apart from people and keep wearing a mask because I'm more human. And those things are hard to do over time. And we miss friends and connection and loved ones. And we all want to get back to, to, to seeing people and I want to see my parents. I want to, I want to hug my friends. Like I want to do all those things too. But, um, this is, I see you're no longer in the yurt. I'm no longer in the yurt. I'm in my daughter's old bedroom. (laughs) So are you, you said before we started, did your, your, your family kind of separate for a little bit to let you work? Is that, so you're kind of on your own now? Yeah. So my family has been incredibly kind and understanding. Um, but when this school year was kind of getting started, so I was in the yurt while they were in the house doing their homework and I was in the yurt doing my work so that we could each have our own individual spaces. I I feel like that yurt was like trending on Twitter, Alaska Twitter for a while. That was a big focus of uh, conversation. Yeah. I didn't expect it to be that way. The other thing too, is that, um, you know, my family really wanted me to quarantine after I would work clinical shifts. And so I would work clinical shifts and then I would stay there for two weeks after my clinical shifts to not expose my family um, to being in the emergency department. 
Um, so I, it, you know, that was, it was a separate place for me to be. And with just how much I've been working and then also working clinical shifts and then my kids, you know, homeschooling and being online, my husband was like, listen, my parents are getting older. Your parents are getting older. They both live in the lower 48. And he was like, I think we should just go down there and um, quarantine from them and bubble and let you work. And I will manage homeschool and kids. Um, but I think we'll do it better down there than we would do it here. So, so a huge, huge contrast to a couple of years ago when you told me you had spent a year traveling around the world with your husband and two kids. Yeah, I know. Huge contrast. <laughs> huge contrast. So um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I miss them. Something fierce for sure right now. They've been gone for a while, but um, they're thriving and they're doing well. And, you know, I remember when I was in Bristol Bay, Chief Tilden uh, told me that his family in the 1918 pandemic headed to the woods uh, during the, the pandemic. His grandmother had said, every pandemic will pass and we're going to go to the woods for a year and we're going to come back in a year and see what it looks like. And they came back to Dillingham and found most of their town decimated and children and dogs being kind of the only things left in that community. And oh, wow. um, I just can't even imagine. And when I think about how hard it is to be away from my family during this and working hard, I, I think of him often and the fact that I am not in the woods of Alaska in the winter <laughs> and I have a house and I have a heater and I am very, very blessed and very, very fortunate in, in that sense. And this too shall pass just like that one did and mm -hmm. we'll get to a better place. My mom used to always say that this too shall yeah. pass. Uh, Diane asks, will community health centers be getting vaccines to distribute? Yeah, so they're actually one of our key distribution places. Uh, so we have providers who are signing up to help distribute vaccine. We have community health centers and we have pharmacies. So we have a lot of pharmacy programs that are working through in combination with the hospitals. So some community health centers already have vaccine and are currently uh, vaccinated. Uh, so I've heard different you know, answers to this. Uh, Dr. Fauci has been interviewed on you know, Meet the Press and several other places and a lot of epidemiologists. What, what's your sense? And again, just, you know, a guess of when this is going to be gone, like over. We can yeah. all just live normal again. When... when I've heard different, I've heard some people say even early 2022 or yeah, so 2021. It's a great question. I think some things will never fully change. You know, we don't fly the same after 9-11, but that doesn't mean we don't fly. Um, we just fly differently than we did. I know that for myself working in the emergency department, I'll always wear a surgical mask now. I think that just our understanding of respiratory droplets and transmission of disease and asymptomatic spread, both with RSV influenza, and my guess is there will be some degree of this, you know, SARS-CoV-2 circulating, just like the other diseases, uh, that that will be an important tool that I'll choose to use in, in that setting. But that's very different than what most of us are choosing to do right now. Mm -hmm. I think that it will be... I, it's very, maybe it's an Alaskan analogy. I think it's going to be a lot like the sun. So today is the longest day of the year. It's your birthday. <laughs> it's the shortest day of the year, the longest well, night. Longest night of the year. Night. I always tell people, yeah, it's I was my like, birthday. Longest night of the year, baby. That's what I always Longest tell night of the year. Sorry, I was thinking of uh, longest night. So longest night of the year. And I also think this is kind of the darkest phase of this pandemic. I Ooh, think. I like that's, I like that's a good I do. I mean, we have very limited vaccine. We have cases surging. But I think by spring equinox, just like the sun, we'll be like, man, it's something's changing. It's getting better. I think we'll be knowing many more people who are vaccinated. Things will be different. And I think by summer solstice, the world will look like a different place. Does that mean it won't ever be stormy or we won't have surges of infection or it might not continue to circulate every winter and we have to revaccinate or we are still some people who are older and sick will get sick? I mean, I, I still think there will be a degree of that. But I think this kind of big surge of this pandemic um, will be a lot like the sun and the summer will be different. So I mean, could this be could this become kind of like the flu shot, where you know you get the flu shot every every year? Is that 
It could be. Yeah. So I think we'll know a lot more in the next like two to three months. So when we look at vaccines, we understand the safety really most within the first two months. And we see most of the adverse reactions show up in the first two months. How long you gain immunity depends on your ability, your body's ability to develop what's called innate immunity. And that we really see in the first six months of time. Uh, kind of think of it as like short-term memory versus long-term memory is mm -hmm. if your body's going to switch this over to the long-term or innate response, or if it's just going to keep it in the short-term antibody response. And so um, we're hopeful that this is all going to switch over to the long-term innate response and that we don't need um, to get vaccinated as regularly, but we'll know a lot more in the next couple months. So um, you said earlier about maybe changing some behaviors, you know, after 9-11, we changed some behaviors and we still fly. I've spent a lot of time in, you know, I've been to China, Japan, South, Southeast Asia, and way before COVID, I mean, going back a long time, they, they kind of, a lot of people wear masks there. It's been part of their culture for a long time. And I mean, do you think that might be come kind of a more normal thing? Because I mean, I'll be honest, I, I wear the mask, but I don't like wearing it. I, I really hate it. <laughs> and it's not I fun. And it's, <laughs> I really don't like it at all. Well, I don't, th I don't think a lot of people do. Although I have found fat biking, my nose and chin stays much warmer. So there's been a few small benefits of it, but <laughs> for the most part, I think you're right. Most people really don't like it. I, I, I can't even imagine when you're doing it for eight hours. I mean, I wear it for an hour, a couple somewhere, you know, maybe in the airplanes longer. It's not, you know, it's just, it's so unpleasant. I can't imagine doing it for a whole shift, eight hours, 12 hours in the hospital. Oh yeah, I put my N95 on before I walk into the emergency department and I do not take it off. I do not eat, I do not drink, I do not take it off for anything during my entire shift. Um, not even water? Not even water. I drink a lot before I go in <laughs> and then I drink a lot oh, when I get gosh. out. <laughs> yeah, I just don't even, I mean, some people do and they go into some, you know, room without other people and they drink and, but I just, I just put it on before I go into my shift. I work my whole shift and then I take it off when I'm leaving the department and don't do it. And it is, I mean, I get like big creases on my nose and it gets worn. You got to change the position oh. and, and, and they are uncomfortable for sure. You know, I, um, I hope that we gain the ability to give uh, employees better time off when they're sick <laughs> so that if they're not feeling well, they're able to stay home. It's a, it's a uniquely American problem. It seems like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I hope that we can do that. I hope that we can be better about not sending our kids to school sick, um, be it RSV or influenza or whatever else is circulating. I think when we're ill, we need to give our body space and time to rest and to, to feed it nutritious food and to sleep and to drink lots of water and not to force ourselves to just plow through and work harder and go to school and send our kids. So I, I hope that we have some changes like that. Mass, I don't know. I think that's going to be more cultural. I do think that they catch droplets fairly well. Um, and again, like me in the emergency department, um, it was is something that I will do in the future um, just to minimize the exposure to, to other people for asymptomatic diseases. And honestly, like <laughs> working in the department since, you know, January, I have not gotten a cold this whole year. <laughs> um, been quite healthy. <laughs> Good. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a lot of People kind of joke. They said I was on their COVID bingo card and they, they surprised <laughs> took this long, you know, I've been pretty good. I mean, I, I, you know, I interact with folks a little bit. I, I, I try to stay, you know, home and um, I do, you know, once in a while podcast or I'll go shopping. And I always wear the mask and I try to be responsible. I didn't go to New Mexico, which I was supposed to do. I can't, you know, which is good. Cause if I do have it, which sounds like I have it, you know, the, um, I have it. I've got it. Okay. I won't get retested, <laughs> but I, you know, my parents are in their seventies and I would have been down there right now. So, and I think now the other thing is too, when you have it, um, I've heard different things about how long it takes to show up. I mean, if I if somebody got it today, it might not show up for four or five or six days, right? Is that kind of how it goes? 
Yeah, so the incubation period, the period it takes to grow the disease is two to 14 days. So if we had been seeing each other in person right now, and then you told me you were positive, I shouldn't go to get tested today, and I shouldn't get tested for at least two days, um, because it takes at least two days for it to start to show up at all. So that's another common mistake that we see. People get exposed, and they go to get tested the next day. What we really recommend- And they're, and they're negative, and they feel good, and then they, they may go spread. Right. And then meanwhile, they're growing that virus more and more, and then they go spread it before they start to become symptomatic. So if you've been a close contact to someone else who has had COVID-19, you need to quarantine. And that means you need to stay away from other people. Um, and so, you know, not, not going to the grocery store, not going to the restaurant, not hanging out with others. Um, it used to be that we said everyone 14 days. There's new CDC guidance um, that allows that to be somewhat shortened. Uh, there's risk with shortening. The incubation period is still 14 days. Um, but you can add a test to it and that helps to uh, get your sensitivity a little bit better. So you can go all the way as low as seven days with a test and you miss somewhere between one to 10%, depending on which data you look at. At 10 days with a test, which is kind of my happy place, um, you're going to miss somewhere around 0.3% of people uh, who have it. So to me, 10 days in a test is like as short as you can get to quarantine without missing very much plus the test versus you can go a full 14 mm -hmm. days with no test. So um, but 10 in a test is my general recommendation. Although places like long-term care facilities and super high-risk places, we still recommend 14 in a test just to be super safe. So I know you got to go soon. I'm going to just, uh, one more question. Um, I don't want to get, get into the, the politics at all, but like the, the, the politics has kind of, as a doctor, has it been frustrating? This has been a very partisan issue around the whole country, around the whole world. Um, maybe talk a little bit about that, you know, compared to, you know, you being a doctor. And then what's your kind of message to, um, the viewers here in Alaskans about, about what's going on now and then, you know, into the future here in the next maybe three to six months. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I love the mission of the Department of Health and Social Services, and that's to promote the health and well-being of Alaskans. And that is 100% my goal. <laughs> um, I had a really traumatic experience in, in residency where a patient uh, initially came in very sick, coded, died, came back to life, got discharged, went home great. But there was lots of politics afterwards. Did you, why didn't you do this? And why didn't you do that? And how about this? And how about that? And all the second guessing. And I had an attending say to me, you know what, Anne, you've always just got to do what's right for the patient and remember that the rest is noise and there's going to be a lot of noise. Hmm. And that was really helpful to me in my clinical career. It's been helpful for me as medical director of my group. It's been helpful in me in other situations. And I think about that a lot here. There's a lot of noise. And, and at the end of the day, I need to be objective about the data. And I need to speak clearly about the things that uh, I think are going to help promote the health and well-being of Alaskans. That is my mission. And that is why I'm here. And that's what I continue to try to do. I also try to make sure that I'm always saying the same thing, no matter if it's to you on a you know Facebook Live, on our echoes that we do on a regular basis, to the governor, to municipalities. It's the same. I, I, I I'm like it's I. It's just easier to always be exactly the same and truthful and honest. No so matter what who you're, I'm talking to. What you're saying is you're not a politician. <laughs> <laughs> I guess not. I mean, like, I'm just me, and I just it's for me. It's way easier to just say the same thing no matter where I'm at, and um, that's just who I am. Uh, and I think that we have tremendous strength when we work together. And I guess that would be my last message to Alaskans. When I look at the science data, when people put together all this effort and said, wow, we've got this virus that is not only destroying our economy, but it's destroying lives and it's destroying travel and all these other things. What can we do? 
they came together. And when we come together as Alaskans, we can transform this virus. This virus only lives when we give it permission to move from person to person. So by you staying in isolation right now and not seeing your parents, you are ending the transmission of that entire viral strain that you got. <laughs> it is not moving to anywhere else. You are taking charge of that and changing that. And you're changing the direction of the entire course of this pandemic by staying away from others. And knowledge is power. Using your knowledge of your positive tests to powerfully stop the transmission and protect those around you. And I think if we collectively as Alaskans to do just what you're doing right now, we have the power to slow this down and to stop it. And I was around some people on Friday. I tested on Saturday positive and I, I contacted them. And I think there is some kind of hesitation from people. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't really have that. I just live pretty openly. But I think there is a hesitation to feel bad or... Um, maybe not scare people or maybe just try to not be responsible, um, which I think, you know, this thing, it, a lot of people get it. It's, it's spreading. It's down a little bit from the last couple of days, but um, I think it needs, people need to know if, you know, it's yeah. way better to be over sharing about, you know, who you were with, or even if it was for a minute or two minutes or something, than you know, be, but have you seen that people are nervous or maybe feel responsible or just feel scared or or stigma, you know, maybe I failed or I was wrong or people will judge me because I got it. And stigma yes. does not help us to, you know, to fight viruses or disease at all. It's a highly contagious, highly infectious disease. And it, it's a lot of times we can't exactly see what, how it happened. People went to a couple grocery stores. They might've touched something or they were around someone and it's hard to know. There's no guilt or blame. This is all Alaskans trying to work against the virus. And these public health measures are here to slow the virus down, not to hurt each other. And so the yeah, more I mean, we collectively do them. I got this. I tested positive on Saturday. Um, I was around some people on Friday, one person on Thursday. Before that, um, just I have a roommate, you know, and that's it. I wasn't around. I mean, I, I get coffee at the, you know, I drive up to the coffee shop or I think I went shop, you know, but I wear the mask. But, you know, I have no idea where I, it could be, it could be anywhere. And it's, 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 it's frustrating, you know, to, did I do something wrong or did somebody else do something, you know? And I just, I think it's better just to be full disclosure on it and tell people I called them and I said, look, I tested positive. I have no symptoms. Um, I would, you know, be careful, get tested and probably quarantine for a little bit until you figure it out. Yeah, perfect. No, I really appreciate you being open and transparent about it. And anyone that had been cumulatively within your uh, six foot radius for 15 minutes or more in your two days prior to testing positive, we would say you should quarantine. Uh, and again, there's kind of that seven to 14 day window, but the best is 10 days in a test. Um, I think it's kind of the shortest way to do it with the most sensitivity. So anyone you're close contact, staying away for others for 10 days and get a test near the end of it to make sure they aren't also an asymptomatic carrier. So uh, last question, uh, personal question. So I changed my ticket to go to Hawaii. I was supposed to leave tomorrow. I changed to the 31st. Should I get tested before I go to Hawaii now or? Double check their website because Hawaii has been quite strict and stringent about it. But I believe that their website also says that if you've been within 90 days of testing positive, you only have to show that one. You don't have to get retested. So oh, nice. okay. after yeah. you recover from this, you likely don't have to get another test. But double check their website because they've been changing quickly. <laughs> I'll, I'll say 95. I just saw the funniest meme. It said uh, thousands of Alaskan test positive for COVID-19 in hopes of going to Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, is um, you know, we still ask people to, you know, uh, participate in wearing a mask and the rest of it. Um, you know, you again, it's pretty unlikely to get COVID-19 in that 90-day period. Um, but just, you know, the their airplanes and other things have policies just because it's hard to keep track of exactly who has had it and who hasn't had it. And we'll see what happens uh, with vaccines moving forward. Uh, right now, we have no plans on changing any of those requirements at the state level. Well, Dr. Anzink, Chief Medical Officer for the state, uh, this is our third. We've done two podcasts now. They're our first Facebook Live, but I really appreciate. It. We have a lot of comments and a lot of folks watching, and I think they really appreciate um, you being available. I know you're very busy um, to answer some questions and get some updates. So, 
Yeah. Well, thanks for having me and happy birthday. I feel honored to come on your birthday. So thank you. It was, a, it was I, when I reached out to you a few weeks ago, they gave two dates and I said, I'm, I'm picking my birthday. Perfect. Well, so, I hope that you continue to feel as well as you are. Thank you for being honest and getting it out there. And um, it makes a big difference and enjoy your birthday in isolation. And here's to a better 2021. Happy belated birthday to you from, from three days ago. Yeah. Thank you. I think I'm going to do like a zoom birthday tonight. I'm just going to put a zoom link out and just tell people to come on on, come on board. Perfect. That's what I did. I had a zoom connection with my family. It was awesome. Dr. Zing, thank you so much again. Thank you for everything you do for the state and really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Yeah. No problem. Landline.